Today we'll speak about <coughs> concerning the matter of mindfulness with breathing meditation insofar as it is the heart of our practice in Buddhism. The essence or heart of Buddhist practice is called anapanasati or mindfulness with breathing in and out. Anapanasati means to be mindful with every inhalation and exhalation. Anapanasati is a system of contemplating the breathing that is improved and refined in the best possible way. This way of practice was advised by the Buddha as something that all serious practitioners should, should try. This practice of observing the breathing and improving the breathing goes back very far in Indian culture. It comes way before Buddhism, in fact. The ancient Indians were very interested in using the breathing and improving it so that one could have the best possible breathing, the most healthy kind of breathing. And although their interest in mindfulness was with breathing was largely on this beginning level of making the breath as, as good as possible, as healthy as possible. There were nonetheless many benefits from doing so, even though it wasn't yet on a higher Dhamma level. And so this is a kind of knowledge and practice that goes back very far, way before the, the Buddha's time even. It's something that has had a lot of importance in India for thousands of years. Of course, all kinds of human development depend upon the, the past, upon our human ancestors. For example, the ability of humanity these days to build these hundred-story skyscrapers. This depends upon past human knowledge and development. And it goes all the way back to the first human being who learned how to take earth or clay and to make it to get make it into bricks or adobe to make the first house in that way. And this kind of knowledge that enabled human beings to stop living in trees and caves then has developed up to the point where we can now build these huge skyscrapers. This all development, whether in the physically and socially or whether mentally, depends upon our, our human past in this way. And so the same is true of anapanasati. India is 
is the source of all branches and aspects of culture for this part of the world, especially in, in places like Thailand, where all aspects of culture are derived from, from India. And this Indian culture is incredibly vast and has explored all, all possible areas of human, human experience, including that of the breathing. And so since long ago, they have experimented with or explored and developed the breathing in a way that has evolved this system of practice called Anapanasati. Originally, they were mainly interested in developing the breathing for the sake of physical strength and well-being. But then eventually they discovered that this, this observation and refining of the breathing can also develop a mental strength. And then they took this further to developing strange and strange mental powers. And then later it was learned that using the breathing one could explore life in a very profound way and uncover a deeper and deeper understanding of Dhamma. Until this last evolution of this system was taken to its furthest development where mindfulness was, with breathing was used as a way of realizing Nibbana, the highest reality or the, the deepest truth. So one should understand how this practice of Anapanasati has evolved in, in this way, that this is how it has come about, and so that we can appreciate what what this practice means and the possibilities contained within it. Most of all, the potential for realizing the, the deepest truth of human existence. So from this description, you can see that three stages of the use of mindfulness with breathing of Anapanasati. First, it was used primarily for developing physical strength and power. Later, it was used, seen that it can be used to develop mental powers. But then finally, in its highest development, it was, it can be used for the development of spiritual power. Spiritual power here just means the complete or sufficient mindfulness and understanding that allows us to, to cut or destroy all human problems. So Anapanasati was developed into this spiritual strength that allows us to see through and eliminate all our problems. Back in the times when Anapanasati was primarily used for, for mental powers, one, it was used both in benevolent and in malevolent 
ways. There were those who used anapanasati to develop magic powers, um, who could use it to perform miracles and such things as this. Some of them used it in the wrong way. Some people used it, used the strength, the mental powers that came from this practice. They used them to harm others, to harm other people, and in other wicked or selfish ways. So sometimes this practice was abused for very selfish purposes. At other times these powers were used correctly for the benefit of human beings. And this is how, how it is that these powers can be developed. But if there isn't enough mindfulness and wisdom to govern or to control these abilities, these powers, then they can be used in destructive, harmful ways as well. So it's important to have this, this overview of the, the development of mindfulness with breathing to understand what, it, what it's about and how to use it correctly. For example, there's an old story from India. Whether you believe it or not is up to you. That there was a famous warrior who was severely wounded in battle so that they couldn't get up, so he couldn't get up again, he couldn't fight anymore. So then as he lay there, he began to say some mantras and then to use anapanasati until he was able to get up again and continue fighting through these, just through these powers of the mind that allowed him to, to force his body that had been heavily wounded to get up and fight again. This kind of anapanasati was widely known in among the people in India. Even the ordinary people knew about it and practiced it. So it was quite a normal thing that ordinary people would practice some anapanasati for the sake of these, these powers, these, for this strength. So young, young men would naturally learn about it. And even Prince Siddhartha, Siddhartha who eventually became known as the Buddha, was able to practice this ordinary kind of anapanasati at the age of, of seven. This illustrates how this knowledge of this practice was right, widespread in ancient India, although it, yet, it wasn't yet the complete or highest form of this practice. But now, our enemy has changed. In the past, we may have thought that our enemy was outside. We had physical enemies to be fought with physical and mental powers. But now, as we become wiser, our enemy changes and we realize that the enemy is inside. 
this this inner enemy are the mental defilement. And so we need a inner or spiritual weapon to destroy these inner enemies. And then so now we must develop anapanasati into being this spiritual tool or spiritual weapon to fight against these inner enemies. Really this this practice ought to be included in the the curriculum of all the universities in the world. Every university should include anapanasati in the required studies of all its students. If the university students would learn about and practice anapanasati, then they would have good mental health and they would have a lot of mental energy and strength. They'd be able to control all kinds of bad moods and bad tempers and harmful emotions that are hassling them. And all kinds of other benefits would happen. They'd be able to remember things very well. Their ability to think clearly and systematically would be improved greatly. Their, all areas of their studies would go along much better if this basic understanding and practice of anapanasati was included. Why it's ignored, why it isn't included, is something that you can think about on your own. But this is a, something that would make a big difference for all university students. But even if other people aren't interested in, in this for whatever reasons they have, we here are, are interested. We're going to try this out and make the most of this. So please give careful attention to the explanations of how this practice is carried out, what it's about, and so on, so that you'll be able to put it into your own practice efficiently and correctly in order to be successful and receive all the proper benefits from this meditation practice. Of course, other, other groups, other religions, other sects have, have forms of anapanasati as well. Practices or trainings that are centered on the breathing are quite common in different cultures, religions, and so on. So they control the breathing or improve the breathing, refine the breathing in various ways. So we, all of these can be included within the term anapanasati. However, the Buddha took the knowledge that was available at his time and perfected it. He developed it to the highest extent possible. And this is what we, <clears throat> and so when we talk about anapanasati meditation here, we're talking specifically in terms of the way the Buddha 
practiced it, developed it, and taught it. Although there are many other forms. We're talking specifically about the, the form that the Buddha perfected. And this, for its purposes, for the sake of our spiritual development and work, this form of anapanasati is complete, sufficient, and it, it includes everything that we need. Now, when we speak about meditation or our practice, we can distinguish, we can make a distinction between the general practice, the overall or general practice, and the specific practice of anapanasati in its four aspects or stages. In terms of the general practice, the the basic practice, it consists of being mindful all the time, being mindful of everything that occurs to the mind. And through this mindfulness, seeing that everything is, is empty of self, that there's nothing that is worth taking as I or mine, that being mindful of everything as not being I or mine. This means that mindfulness is there to greet every sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, all the things that come into our experience, all the things that the mind experiences. When mindfulness greets them, and there is the understanding that these things are neither I nor mine. This is what the, the basic general practice of mindfulness is all about. Now there's the ordinary practice of mindfulness, which isn't particularly serious or, or vigorous or intense or anything like that in just an ordinary way being mindful. This is one way of, of practicing. But if we're really serious <clears throat> about these, these things, if, if we have a, a strong desire to train and develop the mind, then there's a higher level of practice, a, a stronger, more vigorous, way of practice. And this is to be mindful every inhalation and every exhalation. To just be mindful in a general way can be kind of loose and relaxed and is maybe suitable for, for many people. But for those who are really committed and want to practice with great sincerity, then one ought to practice on this more complete level where there's mindfulness from moment to moment without any gaps or, or blind spots. And this is to practice to be mindful while breathing during every inhalation and every exhalation. A basic principle 
of practice is to to practice in the following way that to know to realize that every everything that happens to the mind is is either <clears throat> that every everything that makes contact with the mind is rupa or is is matter is is form and then that the experience of the mind the feeling or knowing of that thing by the mind is called nama or mentality consciousness that whatever is happening whatever is occurring in the mind or toward the mind to the mind is either matter materiality or consciousness mentality if the mind if there is mindfulness of everything in this way of all the experiences all the objects that make contact with mind if there is this mindfulness that is either matter or mentality it's either it's just nama or rupa then no no self no ego consciousness will arise this is a basic principle of our of all meditation practice to have this basic mindfulness now in the complete approach to practice there's when we if we're really going to get serious about investigating life then this system of practice must cover four areas we could say there are four there are four aspects of life to go into the first is the body this body has to be investigated thoroughly then there are the vetana or the the feelings of pleasure displeasure and kind of an ambiguous one then there is the mind itself the third thing to be investigated and understood is the mind itself and then last are basic facts of nature which we call dhamma or natural truth a complete practice a a thorough meditation practice will include all four of these the body the feelings the vetana the mind itself and then natural truth please consider all four of these things so that you see their importance and see why it is so crucial that we investigate all four of them sufficiently for the body <coughs> this is the foundation of life this is where life depends on this body and so this is where we begin our study and practice and then there are the feelings the feelings of pleasure and displeasure that are constantly felt about this body and so this comes next then is the mind the that which knows that which experiences the center 
of our, our life and experience. This needs to be investigated. And then last is Dhamma, or natural truth. If we're going to live life successfully, we have to understand what natural truth is. So all four of these are crucial. And so we will go into all of them in our practice. A refined understanding of these four things will show that they're, how they're connected, how inseparable they, they are. As we said, it begins with, with the body. And then there is feeling. Body and feeling are inseparable because when, whenever there's physical or bodily experience, it will have a feeling to it of some kind, whether agreeable or disagreeable. When there's body is the basis for feeling. If there's body, there will be feeling. And so we just can't separate the two. And so this shows how these two are connected. And then it's the mind that feels. It's the mind that experiences the body. And so the mind must be able to deal correctly with this physical experience and with the feelings about this experience. This, however, if the mind can't deal with these things properly, then all kinds of problems arise. So then there's the need for Dhamma. Dhamma is the correct understanding that will enable the mind to deal with the body and deal with the feelings correctly. So all four of these are connected in this way. There's, it's impossible to separate them. And so to deal with life properly, we need to examine all of these inseparable aspects of life. Although in practice these things are inseparable, of course, in theory, we can talk about them separately. We can distinguish up between them and examine them separately. But of course, once we come to practice, they won't be absolutely distinguishable or separable. So let's look at the body first. Now the first thing to study is in Pali called the Gaya. Gaya, this is what we translate as body. But literally the word Gaya means group. It means the literal meaning is group. Of course the word body in English also has this meaning of being a group. So please understand it in this way when we talk about the body. Now, when it comes to the Gaya, there are two groups that are of most importance. There are two groups that we will study specifically. The first group is this physical body, this group of all the things that make up our physical body. And then the second Gaya is the breath. The breath is a group of things. This, this breath that nurtures, 
that sustains the body. This is the second group. These are the two things that we will study in the, the first part of the practice, dealing with the gaya. Now, the, what's important in getting to know these two groups is seeing how the breath group can regulate or control the body, the flesh body group. The breath has the, because the breath is what sustains the physical body, the breath has the ability to regulate it or govern it. And so this is what we will investigate and train in, train in the ability of using the breath group to control and master the, the body, the body group. An example is of what we're talking about is that when the body is disturbed or agitated, there isn't any tool or machine we can use to, to get rid of that disturbance. However, we can use the breathing as an inner tool to calm down, to control and calm down that disturbance of the body. This is what, this is the kind of knowledge and understanding we need about these two groups, the body and the breathing groups, to be able to see how it is that the breath can control the body. Because the body depends on the breath, because this flesh and blood body is sustained and nurtured by the breath, this gives the breath the ability to, to regulate and control this flesh and blood body. And so once we see this, we can practice until we're able to use the breathing to control this physical body as we need. So, to do what we've been talking about, it's necessary to investigate the breathing until we understand it thoroughly. And with this thorough understanding, we will then be able to control the breathing. And once we can control the breathing, then we can control the body. So as you already have experienced, there are all kinds of breathing. There are many kinds of breathing, and we need to get to know these. The breath can be short. It can be long. It can be coarse. It can be very fine, it can be slow, it can be fast, and so on. These different kinds of breath need to be known and understood. And if we understand this kind of breathing well, then we can choose the kind of breath that is most calming, is most soothing. And then by developing this this breathing, we can make the breath very calm and refined. 
when we can control the breath in this way, then the body will naturally be calmed as well. So the, the essence here is to understand the breathing, choose the kind of breathing that is most calm, and then to regulate or control the breathing to be calm in that way. And then the body will be calmed automatically. Now, all of these are just natural facts that you can know for yourself. You don't have to believe anybody about any of this. You can investigate it and experience it for yourself. Each of you can sit there for a little while and take and breathe fast, coarse breaths. You can hyperventilate or whatever, and you'll see quote, right away that to breathe in this way will disturb, will agitate the body. In the same way, you can make the breathing very calm, soft, refined, and we'll see what kind of effect this has on the body. So there's no need to believe anybody. To just believe someone about all this would be absolutely stupid and infantile. Instead, one can investigate it and know these things for oneself and then put it into practice for one's own benefit. There are <clears throat> techniques, or we could even say tricks, that we can learn about for making the breath refined, making it very peaceful and calm. These are things you ought to learn about and then in explore until you are well trained in these techniques or tricks. These are things that you are being instructed about already over at the meditation retreat center. This word technique in the Pali language it is called upaya, upaya which is often translated skillful means, but what it it just means trick. There are some fundamental tricks that we would like to mention. The first trick is called chasing after or hunting the breath. In this one, the breath, as we all know, is coming in at the nose and fills the lungs, and then it comes out again. In chasing after, the mind follows the breath in, follows it out. It chases it or hunts it in and out. For the sake of practicing this this trick, we, we, we suppose or imagine that the breath enters at the nose, which is of course true, and then that it flows downward filling the lungs, and we imagine that it ends at the, around the navel in the abdomen. This is just a way of, of following the breath a simple way of, of doing this. Of course, the breath doesn't all actually come down to the navel. But we make this supposition for the sake of an easy practice 
then we chase after the breath from the nose down to the abdomen and then as we exhale the mind chases after the breath up back to the tip of the nose we don't need to follow the breath out of the body but just follow this path of the breath from the tip of the nose to the abdomen and back there's this path between these two points and the mind or mindfulness can chase after the breath in and out in this way this is the first trick <clears throat> that we use for refining the breathing now it will of course take some time to be able to chase after the breath properly but if one is willing to give it time does so practices this patiently one will be able to follow the breathing in a calming and relaxing way once one can do that then we can move on to the next trick in the second trick we no longer chase after the breath instead we watch over it we guard the breath at one specific point and the best place to do this is at the tip of the nose now depending on the shape of our nose it might be just inside the nose or it may be at the top of the lip depending on the shape of our nose but wherever you feel the incoming breath most clearly take that point as a guarding point so it might be just inside the nose or at the top of the lip and then the mind guards over the breath at that point watch over the breath as it enters no longer follow it in just watch here as it enters and then keep watching as the breath exits this is the second trick for calming the breathing for refining it further called guarding the breath to do this one should must consider this point to be very sensitive one can even imagine that this point is like a raw piece of flesh very sensitive bit of raw flesh so that we feel the breathing very very clearly very strongly as we breathe in and breathe out if one is sensitive to the breath if one can experience the breath with great sensitivity then this point becomes very very clear and the mind will watch over the breath very very carefully very intensely when one is able to then watch over at this point very intensely with great sensitivity and can maintain that then it's time to go on to the third trick <clears throat> the third trick is called creating the mental image creating a mental image and what this means is that right here at this point where we've been watching the mind creates a mental image this mental image is like a visual image 
that seems to appear at this point. The image isn't real, there's nothing there, but because of the sensitivity, intensity of the mind's watching or of this point, the mind can create an image. These images are talked about as being, they can be a, a red point or a green dot or a, a sphere that is yellow, red, green, white. Sometimes it might be like a little star of some color or other at this point. Or it can be like a diamond, a jewel. The shape of the image will depend on each person's mind and conditioning, but to create some image there at that point. Now this is done intentionally by the, the, the meditator, but however it's not done in a, a crude way. It, it takes a very refined mind, and then the mind kind of inclines towards this image, and then the image arises. So it's something to be done in a very refined way. This creating this mental image is the third trick. At this point, it's good to remember the principle of the little bird. If you hold it too tight, you'll crush it. But if you hold it too loosely, it will escape from between your fingers. To create the mental image at this point takes a very refined mind. It takes great skill. If you do it in a forceful, aggressive, or impatient way, it will be impossible. If you do it with any greed of, I want to get or have this image, then it will be impossible. It's, it's futile to, to try and create the image in such a crude way. The mind must be very refined, very calm. But then out of this sensitivity of the refined mind, the mind can make this image appear. The fourth trick is even more difficult than the previous one. It's called controlling or mastering the mental image. Once this mental image has arisen, this thing can change. And changing it however, the, however one wants is what this fourth trick is about. To enlarge it, increase its size, or to shrink it, to make it change colors, or to have it float up or down or sideways or back and forth. To change the men this mental image in various ways is called controlling or mastering the image. This takes an even more refined mind than before. To hold on to the image without crushing it must be done very, very carefully. This is the fourth trick. The fifth trick is to, is to fix this image, 
to out of all the different in controlling the image many different images occur out of all those images to choose the one that is most suitable for the calm for calming the mind to choose the most suitable image and then to to fix it and when this happens the mind becomes what is called a kakata a kakata means to have a single peak a single pinnacle this means the mind has one focus but it's like the peak of a mountain it's a very it's a high very refined focus it's not some focus down in the dirt when the mind has this single focus or this single peak this image will be used to develop that that kind of mind so the mind selects and then fixes the most refined the most calming image and then by focusing upon it the mind will develop this quality or this characteristic of ekagata the mind has this single focus or or peak and then in this way the mind will calm successful successively become calmer and calmer according to the nature of concentration so through these different tricks there are three stages of of images the first image is a physical image is the actual physical experience of the breathing this is the crudest most basic image then there is the mental image that is created this the first mental image that arises is somewhat spontaneous and its exact form or shape or color is not really in our control just an image is created this is the second level of image and it's a mental one and then the third the highest most refined image is the one that can be controlled at will that can be controlled selected fixed this is the most refined of the images because the last one is completely within the mind's power for each of these three images there are there are technical terms in pali which will mention for those who are interested the first the physical image is called the parikama nimitta parikama nimitta or in thai parigam nimit this is the the first image the second one the purely mental image is called the ukaha nimitta ukaha nimitta and then the third one the one that is com- can be controlled completely at will is called the patipaka nimitta patipaka nimitta so these are the three stages of these images becoming more and more refined so with these three successive <coughs> tricks regarding the images until we come to this highest most refined image this is the fullest 
development. This is the the end point of our training with the body, with the breathing. Beyond this point of fixing that the patipaka nimitta, beyond that is a matter purely of concentration, of the deep stages of concentration that we call the jhanas. This is beyond what we need to deal with in anapanasati itself. And so we can leave an explanation of these <coughs> states of concentration for another time. The development of the breathing, the refining of the breathing, the controlling of the breathing and controlling the body ends with the fixing of the very refined images we've described. So this this concludes the the first set of practices or the first part of the practice regarding the gaya, the body. This is done always through mindfulness of the breathing. Throughout all these tricks there is always mindfulness of the breathing in and the breathing out. So through this mindfulness or with this mindfulness these tricks are used to refine the breathing more and more until we can completely master the breathing and the body. We can master these two bodies or groups, the breathing and the flesh and blood body. In this first stage of our practice, then the breathing is mastered, which means that the breathing is calmed. When the breathing is calmed, all the body is calmed, as well as all aspects of the body and all things associated with the body. <coughs> when the body is refined and calmed, then all its organs and all the systems within the body are calmed accordingly. For example, the heartbeat can slow down and also becomes much, much more refined, much, much more gentle. So when the heart is beating in a more gentle, peaceful way, then the, the blood is circulated through the body in a much more, a much calmer way. And so if one wants to calm one's heartbeat or one's slow one's pulse or lower one's blood pressure, one can do so by controlling the breathing. For example, if one has a wound, such as one has a wound and blood is coming out, if one wants to slow the flow of blood, this can be done by controlling the breathing, making the breath very refined, so that the body becomes calm and then the heart will beat in a much calmer way and then the blood flow will slow down quite a bit. Just this first stage of the practice has great benefits. By practicing until we're able to do this, the body will be very relaxed, very comfortable. This will be great, this will be excellent for our health. It means anywhere we go, any place we are, we can relax the body. 
one can be relaxed any place, any time, any, anywhere, all the time. And so there's many benefits in being able to refine the breathing, to control it and calm it in this way. This is, this makes up the first stage of the practice, which is about mindfulness of the bodies, the breathing and the flesh and blood bodies, or in Pali it's called Gayanu Patana Satipatana, the contemplation of the bodies, of the gayas, as a foundation for mindfulness. Let's, to summarize this very briefly, this is the kind of relaxation where you don't have to spend any money. The next stage of practice is about the vetana, which are the feelings of pleasure and displeasure about towards sensual experience. If these feelings are not controlled, they can create all kinds of problems. They can trick the mind into all kinds of errors. So it's very important to investigate these vetana to understand them in order that they can be controlled. Then we can deal with them wisely so that they won't create any problems or they won't be the basis for any of our problems. The first thing we'd like to talk about about these vetana is what we can call gladness or we could call satisfaction. This is this pleasant feeling of, of satisfaction that arises. Gladness or can take these, these different forms. Now, we should distinguish between two directions that this satisfaction can go. The first one is what, we, what is called rapture. It's very excited, very, very powerful, very, very stimulated. But however, if this gladness or satisfaction is calm, then it's, it's very cool and quiet. It's what we could call contentment. To understand these two possibilities and the difference between them is the first thing to investigate when we come to study the feelings. So there are these two kinds of feelings for us to check out. The first is the excited, vibrant, stimulated kind. In Pali, this is called PD. PD, it's this very vibrant or excited kind of gladness. And then the second one is called Sukha. Sukha is a much calmer, cooler kind of joy. We must investigate both of them. People where the second kind, Sukha, is much calmer and much more peaceful. But most people prefer the first one, PT, because it's so stimulating and exciting, which is what people seem to prefer. We need to be able to notice how the attraction of the two differs and how we react to them differently. 
to see the difference between the feelings themselves and then the difference between our reactions toward them. This is a necessary part of our practice. If one examines carefully, we'll see that one is enslaved to this piti, this stimulating joy, much more than to sukha, the calm, quiet joy. One needs to be able to control this, both, control both of them, in order to move on to further, st further stages of, of the practice. The different aspects of this practice are interrelated. The, the earlier parts are a foundation for the later parts, or the later lessons are built upon the earlier ones. For example, in the controlling, refining, and calming of the breathing, which we talked about a little while ago, this will lead very naturally to a, a sense of satisfaction that one is able to do this and one will be very satisfied. One will, can become very joyful about the calming of the body. It feels very good. And then satisfied with the, that one has been able to train to this, to this extent. And so through the first part of the practice, one is this sense of gladness, this feeling of gladness will arise naturally, or one can say that it can be summoned whenever one wishes. And so once there is this ability to, to create or to summon this gladness, this PT, then one can study it, one can, while breathing in and out, experience this gladness in the mind, taste what it feels like, see how it affects the mind, see how the mind reacts to it. One can do this because of the previous practice has enabled one to then investigate this PT, this excited gladness. If we practice in this thoroughly, then we will become masters of the Vedana, of these feelings, of all feelings. One will be able to summon up this piti, this sense of satisfaction, when this feeling of satisfaction whenever one wants. One can summon it directly, just immediately, spontaneously make the mind satisfied. If one isn't able to do it quite so instantaneously, then one at least has the ability to, by calming the breathing, to create this feeling of satisfaction. When one can do this, when one can summon satisfaction either instantaneously or through calming the breathing, then one can also refine that satisfaction further to calm it into the very cool, quiet joy that we call sukha. This, remember that the satisfaction or gladness can be, can be exciting and stimulating. 
or we can take it in comment so that it's very cool and quiet. The first one is called PT, the second is called Sukha. When we can summon up these feelings and control them like this, this is called mastery over the Vedana. We become masters of the feelings. Once that once these feelings can be summoned up, summoned and controlled, the next thing to do is to examine them thoroughly to know exactly what they are, to see what function they perform in the mind or to the mind. This is to see what influence or power they have over the mind. If one looks into them, investigates them, then one will, what one will learn is that they are conditioners of the mind, or we can say concoctors. They have the power to concoct the mind, to concoct, to create. These feelings will spawn thoughts and emotions in the mind. This ability of them to, to condition, to concoct the mind, this is what they're their function is. This is what we must see very clearly. The third lesson regarding the Vedana is to be able to control <clears throat> that concocting of the mind. In seeing how the feelings, these happy feelings, condition the mind, how they influence, seeing this power they have over the mind, then we need to be able to control that completely to the point where we can calm this influence of the feelings to the degree that they cannot, they have no power over the mind. As long as these feelings can concoct our minds, we are slaves to the feelings. They'll keep us running around chasing after things in the hope of getting these feelings. But when we can control this concocting of the feelings, then the mind can be free of the feelings. And this is the third lesson regarding the Vedana. Then this third lesson completes the second stage of mindfulness with breathing meditation, that which is about the Vedana, which in Pali is called Vedanu Patvana Satipatthana the contemplation of the feelings, foundation for the establishment of mindfulness. So in short, what this second tetrad of practice is about is knowing what these feelings are. Second, knowing what their function is, that is, how they influence the mind. And third, controlling, mastering that function, mastering this influence they have over the mind. Today's talk has gone on quite long. We've more than used up our time. And so, but we've only gotten through half of what our subject. So we'll have to leave the other half until tomorrow. But if so we'll stop now. We're afraid that if we don't, that you won't be good listeners for, for very much longer. So we'll call it quits right here and see you again tomorrow.
That's all for today.